Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further? On today's show, we'll be talking about working in the non-profit space. And to help us understand this area, our guest on today's show is Claire Jenkins, CEO of a non-profit organization called Grow Movement. So first of all, what is non-profit? Most organizations that we're familiar with are for-profit organizations. And what that means is that They exist to maximize profits and the profits are used to benefit their shareholders. This again, I'm quoting from my trusted resource, Wikipedia. And if you take a non-profit organization, its surplus revenues are used to further its purpose or its mission. So there's a fundamental difference that exists between a for-profit and a not-for-profit organization. And... While it doesn't have to be the case, typically community-serving organizations and public service organizations tend to be structured as non-profits. Coming to Claire and Grow Movement, Grow Movement is a non-profit organization that empowers African entrepreneurs with business skills and increases their profitability, and it does this with the help of a global network of volunteer consultants. And so what that means is that people from around the world can apply to Grow Movement and if they're selected, they then mentor these African entrepreneurs, grassroots entrepreneurs over Skype. So it's a very innovative model and so far under Claire's leadership, Grow Movement has helped entrepreneurs in Uganda, Rwanda and Malawi. Claire herself has a degree in developmental economics and international development from University of Birmingham. She started out in the for-profit world, actually, and she worked at companies such as Tesco and British Telecom. Then in 2013, she took over as CEO of Grow Movement. And since then, the organization has grown very well, done a great job, and in fact, Claire also won the Volunteer Manager of the Year Award in 2015 and this was awarded by the Third Sector magazine based in the UK. Claire comes not only with a lot of experience in this space but also a lot of passion for the space and on today's show she'll be sharing a lot of details with us to help us understand what is it like to work in the non-profit space. So with that Let's switch over to Claire. Hey Claire, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Hi, Sonali. Fantastic. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak. I'm doing very well, thank you. Yes, of course. Thanks a lot. Um, I, For those of our listeners who don't know, I actually have volunteered with Grow Movement in the past. And Claire, one thing I've noticed is that you share these really interesting video updates every week 
to share with everyone what is going on in the organization and they're definitely very useful but one thing i've noticed is that you're always in a new location every week so do you travel a lot as part of grow yes i travel a lot around uh, the the uk particularly across london so i have quite a varied role which requires me to be visiting different businesses different volunteer organizations uh, across London so or I'm also seeing meeting volunteers or I'm seeing our IT company so invariably you'll see a weekly update video from me in some part of London ah i see okay and most of these meetings are are you seeking uh, help in some form or the other what are the what is the travel usually about uh, great question. It's a real variety. So if I'm seeing our IT people, it's about a new IT system that we're putting into Grow Movement to make us more efficient and improve the volunteering experience. Uh, I could be heading off to speak to a journalist who's writing a piece about volunteering uh, and the impact that we have overseas. Or I could be going to see an organisation that supports us by providing volunteers. So I'm going to see them and give them an update. Or I could also just going to visit a volunteer who's come in from another country and catch up with them for a coffee somewhere across London. Ah, I see. Okay. Actually, this is it's a very interesting model and we'll go into how Grow Movement works. But uh, what is your how many volunteer consultants do you have as of today? We have 1,500 in 65 countries. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. And how big is the organization itself? In terms of people? Yeah. So in the UK, it's uh, myself plus a board of uh, nine trustees, and overseas we have a team of sixteen. Sixteen. Okay, so it's yeah, it's really small. So it's so you, around twenty people managing fifteen hundred consultants globally. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. All right. So before we get into details of nonprofit and grow movement, uh, why don't we start out with you sharing a little bit of a background with us about yourself and your journey so far? Yeah, sure. So uh, when I was eight, I took a gap year and volunteered with an organisation called the Project Trust, and they send people between uh, A levels and university here in the UK to have interesting experiences overseas for a year. So I worked in a private uh, in a primary school in Honduras in Central America, and I think that probably gave me my first interest and love and curiosity for the world. I came back, went to Birmingham University and did a degree in geography and then international development. I then went to work for, I did a year working for the government. didn't make a very good government employee because uh, <laughs> I, I really like to do things and, and I, I didn't find that I really had enough to do. <laughs> uh, I left working for the government. I was working at the House of Safety Executive as a policy advisor. And then I went to go and work for Tesco, which is uh, one of the biggest retailers in the world. And there I worked in the fruit team uh, as a fruit buyer, uh, traveling the world, sourcing fruit and working with supply companies. It was an absolutely phenomenally interesting job. I went all over the world in five years. And I think that is where my interest in entrepreneurship started because to work in the produce sector as a grower, you have to be incredibly strong and able to cope with numerous challenges. So in business, you're always going to have challenges thrown at you. But when you're in the produce sector, you cannot have contingencies from Mother Nature. So if it wants to rain, you're going to have a pest invasion. You stand to lose hundreds of thousands of pounds. Mm -hmm. So the kind of people that work in that space 
are incredibly strong. They're uh, incredible people. So particularly in South Africa, uh, I saw some incredible entrepreneurs out there who work not only in the produce space, but also have a wider business. They'll have numerous businesses. But what I particularly noticed when I was in South Africa and also Chile and Argentina is the pure number of employers, employees that come from the produce sector. And the produce sector is just by entrepreneurship. So uh, I'd visit citrus and grape farms in South Africa and see that hundreds of people are employed in this industry and a real range of types of jobs. You, know, you have everything from growers, sorry, people who plant, people who pick, people who pack, right up into the management jobs. So I saw from a very young age the power of business to be creating employment in developing nation countries. So I had an amazing job. I then decided that there's more out there in the world. What else could I be doing? I left Tesco, a very well-paid job, and went backpacking. Um, that time I went through the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went through the Middle East and also East Africa. And I came back and thought I'd go and try another industry. Um, I enjoyed the food industry immensely and I really enjoyed retail, but I wanted to see what else was out there. And I went to work at BT, which is a global telecoms provider. And I was on a mid to senior leadership program there and I finished up as a general manager managing our outsourced contract in India. And there are essentially two main reasons why I left a very highly paid job with really great benefits. One was I was filling out my personal development plan. It was in one to three years, I want to be managing director of, and I went through all of the departments in BT, so transformation, HR, operations, marketing, and it was just no to every single one. And it was then that I realized, actually, mm-hmm. I don't really see myself here in the future. This isn't the place for me. And that was then reinforced when I had some of my India team over to have uh, to the UK for a reward and recognition trip. And we went out for dinner with my MD at the time. And we started talking about travel and adventure. Um, I love travel and I could talk for hours on it. Um, and the feedback came to me the following day with clients, don't talk too much about what you've done because it takes the shine away from me. Um, and she thought ultimately manage your boss and respect your boss, etc. But I thought, as a leader, you should always encourage other people to be talking about what they do. And if they've done something more than you, then that's fantastic and should be encouraged. You shouldn't be asking people to be quiet because they've done something more than you. And I thought, ooh. I'm meant to want to be you and follow in your footsteps, and I don't. And so that's why I left. Again, I went backpacking again. I came back to the UK, and I saw this role. It's a, Well, it was a, the exec director role at the time. Um, I've been a volunteer since I was 16 in various different guises. Uh, I love volunteering. I was looking for a role that made me feel alive, that made me feel sparky, that could be around people. Uh, I wasn't entirely sure what I was looking for, but this was perfect for me because it was about business. It wasn't pure charity. It wasn't pure pure donations and handouts. It was about improving business, which for me is is a sustainable way to be involved in another country. And it was also about volunteering. So for me, it was a happy marriage between business, which I the background I come from, and volunteering, which is what I used to do a lot, a lot of outside of work. Right, right. Well, thank you so much. This is it's a very interesting story. 
I think the the common theme that you've mentioned throughout your your journey till the time that you joined Grow Movement is travel and backpacking. So you took your gap year in the beginning, uh, where you had certain experiences, and then and then you backpacked I think twice for for a fairly long period of time. Can you share any experiences that you had when you were traveling that may have either directly or indirectly shaped this desire to help other people? Because ultimately in Grow Movement, yes, it's it, you're you're helping people improve their business and it's a volunteering organization. But the at its core, at in in the most fundamental way, you are helping grassroots entrepreneurs, people who are really in the help of need. So, was there anything that might have shaped this desire to do this? I think so. For me, when I uh, my dad in his early twenties, he spent a couple of years as a mechanics teacher in I can't remember where it was now <laughs> in uh, southern Africa in uh, Swaziland. Okay. So from a young age, I'd grown up with photographs and stories of, about the world. And I had it reinforced a lot how lucky and privileged I was to have such ease of access to education and just how, how easy opportunities were for me. But I'd always grown up with a very appreciative and grateful nature towards, you know, towards where I, I was born. And ever, ever, ever since then, the, the life lottery has always bothered me. For me, it's fundamentally wrong. And we all should be standing up and assisting other people who have not had the same opportunities that we have. Um, then going off and travelling and living and working and, uh, and seeing reinforces the unfairness of the life lottery. Which, which regions had the most impact on you when you were travelling? I think uh, the biggest impact on me was my year in Honduras. So I lived on a very small Caribbean island, and we lived on the edge of a we lived on the edge of a slum. So the the island was very polarised. You had very top end tourism, so top end scuba diving and dolphin tourism, and a lot of very wealthy Americans that would come and stay on the island. But you also had a lot of poverty, and when you've got two extremes on the same island, that causes a lot of problems, a lot of ill feeling a lot of jealousy and a lot of unfairness and living amongst that so living in a, in a poor local community yet being yet being English and from the first world it, it really brought home to me just how lucky I was and how unfair again how unfair life lottery was yeah I, I, I think that that was the biggest biggest impact on me and anywhere that I've been subsequently just reinforced that and and then you mentioned another very interesting point, which is that when you left British Telecom, or I, actually even when you left Tesco, and I, I'm sure at the time of leaving BT, you must have had a large number of options to choose from, many of which were in for-profit companies, which might have paid you much more than a typical non-profit would. So what was your thought process at that time? Uh, just in terms of, were you worried about anything? Were you ever concerned that you're taking a risk, just from a purely financial perspective? Uh, I, I don't see the, the the world in that way. For me, it's about being in, always being in the pursuit of happiness. I am inspired and motivated and invigorated when I'm learning. After four or five years at BT, I wasn't really learning and I wasn't really learning anything I wanted to learn. So I, I felt the desire to go off and see the world 
and feed my curiosity and feed my hunger for knowledge. So I probably would have had some nervousness about finding a job, but not really. Mm-hmm. Yes. I know. I think that is what is incredible because, uh, in, in your opinion, do you think that you need someone with that sort of mindset to take to take the plunge in a sector which, which I mean, it clearly has so much impact, right? But if you see the bulk of the world today works in the for-profit sector, so do you think that this is a common mindset that you might find in a lot of people who are working in the sector? Just in terms of you're you're not really viewing the world in terms of um, hey, you know where would I get the most financial rewards? I think there are, there are two routes into working in the, the charity sector. The first route is it's just what you've always wanted to do, going through school and going through university, and you just find yourself moving into the charity sector. It's like what you've always wanted to do. Just like if you're a nurse or a doctor or a policeman, chances are you've been wanting to do that kind of role for a long time. And then second of all, I think the, the root of this is increasing now, comes from a fatigue of working without value and purpose. Mm-hmm. So there's an incredible organisation here in the UK called escapethecity.org, which is built by a couple of ex-city bankers, which is all focused around finding employment that is more meaningful and generally just makes people happier. And I'm finding more commercial people are moving into the charity sector, but not the sector, all setting up their own social enterprises. I see. Okay, yeah, that's a great point. All right, so how would you describe a non-profit organisation? Uh, I think it's very difficult to describe a, a, a not-for-profit organisation because there are so many. So there, the non-profit label means different things in different places and encompasses so many things. So a not-for-profit can include social enterprises, it includes charities, but the, the, the key difference I, I tend to find is just around the natural energy and passion with which people work. So when you're working for something that you fundamentally believe in, there's a, there's a greater energy, there's a greater passion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's incredible to be around. When people are able to tap into their natural way of being, their natural energies, the natural things that they're passionate for, that's amazing to be around. Right. So actually, you know, you're someone who's in a unique position who can compare working in fairly well-established for-profit companies and now working in the non-profit space. So one thing that you're clearly mentioning is uh, is a difference that you've noticed. It's just the sheer passion and commitment that people bring to the table. Apart from this, what are the other things that stand out in your mind? I find that there's a difference in how people behave. So in the corporate sector, you can often find people can be very on the back foot, defensive, not particularly open, friendly, and welcoming. I find in the the not-for-profit sector, people are more authentic, more real. They don't find that need to put on that corporate corporate way of being. Uh, So it's a lot easier to engage with people, which makes it a lot nicer nicer place to, to work. There are a number of other key differences. The downsides are the salary never going to be as high as what you get in the corporate sector. That doesn't mean to say that, the, that it's terrible pay, but there is, uh, there is a real difference. So if anyone does consider moving into the, the charity sector, you have to be aware that it, it will significantly impact your lifestyle. And that has to be a choice that you are willing and, and ready to make. 
it's not something that you can just jump in and think, oh my gosh, working the charity sector, I'm going to feel so amazing every single day. Mm-hmm. It's not going to matter that I've got 50% less pay cuts. It does have to be a very real and long decision that, uh, that you make. Right, 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 right. Um, another difference that I noticed between the corporate sector and the charity sector is it's a lot harder to achieve the same standard that you can in the corporate sector. In the not-for-profit sector, you are often more limited by money and by people resources to get things done. So you actually have to be get yourself to a position whereby you're happier or you can get to a position whereby you can live with yourself for producing lower quality work than what you can when you've got much more resources in the corporate sector. Right. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very, very good point. And I would imagine that in the non-profit sector, just a lot of the things that you might take for granted in a big for-profit company, you just can't afford to do that. So can you talk a little bit about that, especially because you're running your own non-profit organization? Uh, what are the kind of challenges you face, the type of resource constraints you face, and then how do you go about handling them? Uh, so I, I come from uh, two very large blue-chip companies where there are systems, very clearly defined roles. On a Friday, you get your finance report. Everything is there. A system reminds you what you're meant to be doing. So that may well be the same for some larger not-for-profits, but I can only speak from the micro-startup charity side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit like running your own small business. You, you do everything, whether it's a paying invoices, going to the bank, you do a whole variety of tasks, some of which low level, some of which more strategic and high level. So yeah, how, how, do you go, how do you go about coping with the fact that you can't achieve to the same standard at the same speed that you're used to? I, initially, I did find that quite difficult. You go on a whole journey of change, you go on a whole emotional cycle of change, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm used to producing at this level, and I can't do that now. I'm finding that really, really difficult. And you, and you go through beating yourself up, right? So then you get to a point where I know I'm not going to get any resource, more resource for a while. I've still got a deadline to hit. I'm just going to have to get over it. And that's what you do. You just get over it and move on. Right. <laughs> so how are most non-profits funded? I, and you don't have to talk about this specifically in the context of growing up to you, but generally, how would you fund a non-profit? There's a whole different variety, a whole number of ways of funding not-for-profit. Grow Movement is funded by uh, the British government, the Scottish government, a couple of other trusts and uh, private donations. Other organisations may have a commercial arm that funds the charity arm. So usually it's a combination of high net worth individuals, trusts, foundations and fundraising. So everything from cake sales, bake sales, marathons, really a whole variety of things i see so but it's primarily through donations and fundraisers and then of course you can get very creative around it okay yeah all right and one i think there's one more kind of organization that has attracted a lot of attention in recent times i think it's called a b corp at least in the u.s so essentially the idea is it is still a for-profit company but they say that they they exist with some sort of social cause in mind so, what is your take on that model? Uh, so, any organisation that is doing something positive is great. That has not that has an angle that is wanting to improve something or other. I think that's fantastic. Um, I don't have a problem with an organisation making profits and doing good. Okay. Okay. All right. So, for the benefit of our listeners, can you describe what Grow Movement does? 
Yeah. So Grow Movement believes in the power of business to be lifting people out of poverty by creating employment. So we work with entrepreneurs in Uganda, Rwanda and Malawi. And there's a real key difference between entrepreneurship in East Africa and entrepreneurship in the Western world. So right now, a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs. They want to be their own boss. They'll have their own destiny. There's a certain level of sexiness about being an entrepreneur. You think entrepreneurship, you think Dragon's Den, you think Richard Branson, you think Alan Sugar, you think, you know, a whole bunch of famous business people. Um, the reality where we work is very different. There's limited government jobs, there's limited private jobs, but also there's no safety net from the government. There's no unemployment benefit, no social security, nothing. So a lot of people are driven into entrepreneurship through no other choice. So many of the clients that we work with are running their own business because they've got no choice. They're also running them without a full education and also running them without access to locally affordable business skills training. So the potential is absolutely huge to create employment because you've got people who are running their companies, they're going to run their companies, but imagine if they could run those businesses with the right toolkit. They knew they had great strategy skills, marketing skills, and finance skills. So the potential to create employment with existing companies is absolutely immense. So our clients are you know, dedicated, savvy people give them the right skills, and their businesses fly. So what we do is I have a, a locally employed African team on the ground. They interview and screen our local entrepreneurs. They also interview and screen our business consultants, and they then match them. And together for six months, working via Skype, mobile, WhatsApp, they look at how the business can be improved. Invariably, it starts with looking at the finances, um, many of our clients struggle with working out their operating costs, what margins they should have, um, tracking their actual costs. Our volunteers help with that, and then often they move into the marketing side of things, looking at how Facebook and WhatsApp and uh, signage and leaflets can used to drive uh, customers to their business. Right, right. So can you give examples of the kind of uh, entrepreneurs that you're helping? Yep. Uh, so they range from 18 up to 65 both men and women. They're predominantly in the service sector. Um, within the service sector, it's either retail or education. In retail, it could be anything from a tailor's clothing store, electrical store, just general merchandise to uh, hair salons, beauty salons. And in the education sector, it tends to be magazine production or nursery schools or primary schools. In the agricultural sector, it tends to be pigs or chicken farming sorghum, local-based type products, and then also retailing them as well. Mm-hmm. So why why Africa? And I'm, not, I'm not saying why, you know, it shouldn't be Africa, just like what made you select Africa? So our founder, Chris Coughlin, he's an ex-hedge fund manager and alumni from London Business School. Um, he spent quite a bit of time in Rwanda and Sierra Leone as an election monitor for the European Union. And um, his experience there was about you know, 10 odd years ago now. He was struck by the fact that farmers were getting text message advice on crop prices in rural areas. He's like, wow, you know, that was amazing. You know, look, at what te- look, at, uh, look at what technology can, uh, can do. But on the downside, he was struck by the number of young people that were not working, that were not even engaged in, in some kind of education. And he was just very struck by what a tremendous waste of human potential that was. 
came back to London, he was studying here at London Business School, and he was like, well, hang on a second, if you can do text message for farming, you can do text farming advice, could you do the same with business skills? Could you deliver that by, by Skype? And because he had an affinity with Africa, he started in Uganda, then expanded to Rwanda, and then down to Malawi. Oh, wow, okay, all right. You make it sound so simple, but okay. <laughs> Can you give an example of a project that stands out in your mind? Oh, crikey, lots and lots of them stand out. I think one of my favourite ones is the first client that I met when I first started Grow, which was when I first started at Grow, which was in June 2013. And uh, I met a guy called um, Isaac. Uh, he runs a printing and design company in Kampala, and uh, he's a bit of a he was a bit of a cheeky chappy, and you know he was very honest with me. And he said, "Claire, the only reason I came to grow movement was because the Zungus always give money, and I thought if I stuck stuck around long enough, I would get some money from uh, my volunteer consultant." <laughs> uh, um, and he goes very quickly. I realised that I wouldn't, and that this was quite serious, and I was going to have homework to do. And he goes, at times I was a bad student, and Ray, my consultant, would get cross with me. But he managed to sort out his finances. Uh, he improved his marketing and his repeat purchases from customers. And he ends up creating seven new jobs. So I, I love the fact that we took somebody on a journey that had very, very different expectations of what Grow Movement could give to taking him to be a, a much more successful businessman. Right, right. So you mentioned that you work with volunteer consultants, right? So how do you recruit these volunteer consultants and what is your quote-unquote pitch to them to spend their time with Grow Movement? So we recruit heavily from business schools right around the world. We recruit from the Association of MBA, Institute Leadership and Management, the major accountancy uh, organisations, so we recruit heavily, really, right across the business sector. And the pitch really is around an incredible experience. It's about learning your numbers of volunteers so you improve your consultancy skills, cross-cultural, cross-cultural by digital technology skills, as well as being re-inspired and re-motivated and having a tangible and demonstrable impact on a business overseas. And uh, have you ever faced any issues with the volunteer consultant model? Yeah, absolutely. The kind of volunteers that we have, they change jobs, they're very senior, they change continents. So it, at times it can be difficult to commit to six months. And volunteering always comes behind job and family and friends. So we are never top of the list. So at times that means that our clients get forgotten about and people disappear for a while and then come back later on. So it's not the same as working with a paid resource. Yeah, 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 I can imagine. So can you describe a typical day for us? How much do you, you know, what kind of different activities do you do and how much time do you spend? Uh, I don't have a, a okay. very typical day, but it always starts off with a Twitter scan in the morning, uh, Twitter and Facebook scan. So I'll, I'll research the countries where we work um, and pick up any particular interesting article or organisations, and then I'll share that out with the team if there are things that they need to know. Um, then it's obviously straight into the email inbox and actioning anything in there. And then I will have operations things to do. 
So we'll be talking through with the team any particular issues that they've got with volunteers, with their clients, we're coming to a solution there. And then there's always a big piece around volunteer management. So it can either be talking with volunteers about any particular challenges they're facing with their project, or it could be meeting volunteers, or it could be going to visit organisations to recruit new volunteers, or follow up on how the existing volunteers are doing. Right. There's also quite a bit of networking involved, so um, I would spend time with other organisations that work in our countries, or it could be going and meeting with the uh, Uganda or Malawi High Commissioners. So it really is quite a varied role, right down to doing journalist interviews or heading down to the bank to pay the staff overseas. I see, okay. Um, you, you mentioned that you, you start your day with scanning Twitter and Facebook looking for any interesting articles. Can you yes. describe what kind of articles would be interesting in this context? Yeah, sure. So there was one that I was tweeting about yesterday, which was a review that came out from Stanford, which is those people who volunteer suffer less from depression and are more likely to be happy. So that's a new, quite interesting article that we then share with our volunteers, uh, our operations teams, and then also with the organisations that supply us with volunteers. It might also be that I've come across a, an entrepreneur in South Africa or Ghana that's doing something interesting, and I would then share that out. To come across things that our governments are up to, and our, the British government are up, up to, um, in our countries, and then I'll get in contact with them and say, you know, hey, we can help here, or we can do things there as well. I see, okay. And if we don't look at a typical day as such, but if we look at, let's say, the kind of activities you do over the over a year, so in a non-profit, what, what would be the big chunk of areas that take up a lot of your time? For example, fundraising, for example, I'm sure takes up a lot of your time. Networking, as you said, takes up a lot of your time. So how would you describe the big areas that you spend most of your time in? So a big area would be around strategy. So thinking about where we're going, where our volunteers are going to be coming from, where our money is going to be coming from, what kind of organisations should we be looking to work with in the future. Um, and a big part of my role is also uh, operations management. So for me, it's really split between the two. Uh, what was the what was the second point? Operations. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. What are the kind of yeah. operational challenges that you would run into? So recruiting enough volunteers, mm-hmm. ensuring that our twelve sessions in six months are going ahead, finding out what's going wrong, why some of them might not be moving. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 It, I mean, how intense would you describe your job? Uh, and maybe you can compare it with the time when you were at Tesco and BT. I, I know that it's very different just because, I mean, now you're running your own company as opposed to working at a company. But maybe you can yeah, speak so, from the point of view of an employee, perhaps. So it, it's a lot more intense and the pressure is very different because you have one feeling towards hitting targets that are only impacting profit and loss. Whereas here, it's, it's a lot different. You're dealing with people's lives, people's personal time on the volunteer side of things. You're just dealing with a completely different end result. Uh, the harder you work, the greater impact and the greater good that you bring. Um, so the hours are very, very different, very, very rare, very varied. And probably working for every that spills more over into your personal time than uh, working in, in a corporate world. But that's okay because what you do is pretty cool, pretty interesting, and you're doing it with amazing people. Right, right, right. And apart from apart from dealing with the people who are either working at Grow or and the volunteer consultants. 
do you have to also sort of keep in touch with let's say your board members or people who are donating funds so or, or does it or is it more of a transactional relationship where they give you the money and then that's it uh, it, it varies so all donors have different requirements and all donors want different things from the relationship with you i've got very different donors some only want the report and others want, want a lot more some want to be involved and understand the challenges that you go through on a month-to-month basis others just want an annual report Right. Okay. And I'm not sure if you personally, or not personally, but as grow as an organization might have suffered from this, but there is a general impression among a lot of people that while they want to help out, and I'm speaking from a, from a donor perspective, right? So while they want to help out, they're always wondering, is this the right organization to give my money to? Because uh, you're not really sure about the actual impact that it creates. So have you ever felt that? And if yes, how have you dealt with it? Uh, yeah, so uh, as a charity, the sector's taken quite a lot of bashing lately. So we've had organisations that have had unscrupulous tactics when it comes to fundraising. We've had organisations like Kid Company, which was an incredible organisation that then folded because of bad management practices. And in general, the, the sector has uh, it, it has a, a label that it's ineffective, waste money and doesn't really make a difference. And I, I see that in some of the organisations that I've come across. We always believe that GROW stands apart from that, as every organisation does think they're different to, to the masses, mm-hmm. but we are different because we're not involved in money. We're involved in skills transfer only. As an organisation, we're very target-orientated, so we're focused on the reason, reason why, why we're in operations. We're in operations to lift people out of poverty, and we do that by creating employment. So... All of my team are very focused on how many jobs they've created, how many projects they've got open. We're just really very target and result-orientated, which can be unusual in the charity sector. Got it. Okay. All right. So, uh, in your opinion, what do you think are the most interesting aspects of working in the non-profit space? I think it's the variety of activity that you get to do, the variety of people that you get to meet. So for me, working with entrepreneurs overseas, they're, they're just fantastic people and, and it's great to spend time with them. Equally, it's great to see volunteers here in the, the, in the UK. They're all successful, either entrepreneurs themselves or they're successful business people. And I get to see them at their best because they're giving me their, their, their business skills and they're giving me you know, themselves as a person. So I don't get to see that corporate side of them. I get to see that real person, which for me is, is a, a real treat. And then ultimately, it's a great feel-good feeling because you know what you're doing is making the world that little bit of a better place, not just in the countries where we work, Uganda, Rwanda, Malawi, but also we're offering an incredible and enlightening and invigorating experience for people here in the Western world as well. Yeah, I'm sure. And are there any particular challenges that stand out in your mind? I think the, the main challenge is always going to be around vision that you have and being able to get there when you've got limited resources, both in terms of money and in terms of time. Right. Are there any aspects of the non-profit space that you just don't like? Yeah, there are. I, I don't like the, um, the reputation that we have in general as the non-profit charity sector. I don't like being part of a team that has that reputation. So we work very hard to, to, to balance that out by being the best organisation that we can be. I think that's my main 
probably my second frustration is uh, collaborative working, networking between charities isn't necessarily done as much as it is in the corporate sector. And I think that's a function of time and maybe just the culture of the charity sector. I see, I see. So uh, in what way do charities help out each other? There's always potential for shared learning. Um, there's always potential for partnership, shared office space, even bank to just carry a product for each other to, to various different countries. But it doesn't happen enough. I think there's definitely more that we could do as a sector to be working together. All right. All right. So now let's switch over a little bit to just um, talk a little bit about someone who might be thinking about working in the nonprofit space. So first of all, let's say someone is on the fence between working at a for-profit company versus uh, a not-for-profit company. How would you help them think about this decision? So I'd always think what's important to you. Is it doing something good? Is it doing something great? Or is it money? Because I do recommend everybody to spend some time in the corporate sector because it's just fantastic training in terms of focus of customer service and your bottom line. You don't get the same exposure to customer service and bottom line in the charity sector that you do in the corporate sector. So being target orientated, these kind of things come from being in the corporate sector because the corporate sector is driven by time, it's driven by money. And having those principles really good in your working uh, in your working life. So I would recommend for everybody to spend time in the commercial sector at some point in their career. And to be honest, to a certain extent, if you don't know what you want to do, go and chase money, and then eventually you'll decide what you want to do, and and you'll get there eventually. Right, right. I don't think you necessarily have to to make a choice that you'll always be charity or you'll always be corporate. I think it's about finding experiences things that make you happy at different points in your journey in life, you'll find that enjoyment different in the in the in the charity sector than you might find it in the corporate sector. Right. I mean uh, and this is just uh, maybe this is not a very useful question, but the are most of the people in non profits are most of them slightly older who have already spent some time let's say accumulating savings or uh, you know building some sort of a financial foundation so they feel more sort of safe in going down this route and and if not then i mean i i guess the younger ones are just they're so driven i guess by by the by whatever the company's working at that they're they're just okay with taking that hit uh so i I think that people like me that were in the corporate sector then just got bored of it and just wanted to do something that was more interesting and impactful. Um, tend to be on boards. Uh, they do tend to be older people who've got that life experience and that work experience. Do you know, I don't think there is actually a real trend that I could say that I, I that could uh, pull out. I do think that the salary does turn a heck of a lot of people off. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, what, let's say once the person has decided that, yes, I want to work in this space, then how would you go about helping them figure out which non-profit organization to work at? I think it's important to see their social media profile. So how do they come across as an organization on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook? Um, what's their annual report look like? What's their purpose? Are they clear on what their purpose is? Are they clear on what their impact? 
I think if you're an organisation that is really clear with what they're doing and their impact, probably going to find them a really frustrating organisation to, to work with. Then it's a case of going onto LinkedIn, finding people that you know, that you would know or someone who can introduce you to someone who's working at that organisation and try and go and have a coffee with them. great thing about charity people is we're always open to doing things. We like to do things for others. So if somebody uh, gives you a phone call and asks you to, to come and see you, you're, you'll always be, yeah, come yeah. and have a coffee, let, let, let's talk about it. I see, okay. And how would someone assess the impact that the organisation is having? It's a case of looking on their, their websites. Generally, they'll have the result for an impact section, or it will be on the front page of their website. It will be number of works with number of training courses done, number of needles handed out, number of homeless people taken care of. Mm-hmm. It will be those kind of stats will be available. If they're not, then either they don't really have the money to be running their websites properly, or they're not focused on actually making a difference and showing it. I see, I see, okay. And uh, do non-profits have like a, a performance review system? Yeah. They do? And uh, how how similar or not similar is it to what you may have seen earlier in your for-profit career? So our performance reviews are based on the ones that I would have gone through in my corporate career. Um, I think they're important to do. Okay, okay, all right. All right, so... I think this is it. I think it will be helpful if you can uh, tell us a little bit about what kind of person do you think would really enjoy himself or herself in this job? So I think the, the kind of people that would enjoy working in this sector are, are people who are curious about people, people who want to make a difference, and people that can really just kick down barriers and not let things get them down. It can be a real challenge to work in this sector and you have to be incredibly strong, motivated and driven to achieve. Right, right. I can, I can understand. So any parting advice that you might want to share with anyone who might be either interested in this space or even people in the for-profit space who are not thinking about this space actively at all? <laughs> so uh, I'm a firm believer in always pursuing happiness. So always know what makes you happy. Um, if something isn't, identify it, either change it or just get over it and move on. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Claire. This was extremely helpful. A lot of useful insights that I'm sure a lot of people will find very interesting and helpful to help them decide if this is the career that they want to go up with. Um, thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. All right. Bye-bye. So that was Claire Jenkins with a great account of what it's like to work in the non-profit space. If you like what we are doing, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. It is called Learn, Educate, Discover. You can also rate our show on iTunes. It really just takes only two minutes. So please, if you can take out some time, please do rate our show. It really means a lot to us. Also, if you have any feedback to share with us, or if you have suggestions on professions that we should include in our upcoming episodes, you can email us at learneducatediscover at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at LED underscore curator. Show notes from today's episode will be posted to our blog. You can find our blog at medium.com forward slash at LED underscore curator. So thank you so much for listening. Until the next one. Ciao.